0: but Abraham is the very first named prophet in the scripture. And Abraham, in every detail, both by picture and by the things he says, prophesies the delivering up of God's only son.
1: Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi, senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're looking at the eternal security of the believer, how once an individual is truly saved, they can never lose that salvation. Our passage is Romans 8, verses 31 through 33, in part one of a message entitled, More Than Conquerors. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy explains the subtle but important difference between God's making believers righteous and God's declaring believers righteous.
0: To go to heaven, you must be as righteous and as holy as God. And so God not only forgives us, he declares us righteous, he imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And most of you, I hope, have the last two letters of that final word in those five links circled. In God's mind, it is already done. God has already glorified me. Just like God says, I'm already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. God says, I'm already glorified. Now, not experientially, I'm waiting for that day when Jesus will come back and complete my salvation. But in God's mind, positionally, I am already glorified. And so what I wanted us to see is between those whom God foreknew and those whom God glorified, uh, a past tense all the way through, there is absolutely no, leakage whatsoever and so God wants us to understand just how secure we are in Jesus Christ and all of the benefits that come with this package deal we call salvation Peter Dynica born in present-day Belarus in uh, 1898 in 1914 got on a ship to come to the states he made his way here through Nova Scotia And uh, he he said in his biography, it was like I was on the other side of the world. And of course, he comes to America. Many of you know his name because he shows up at a place called Moody Church in Chicago. And it is there that he is converted to Jesus Christ and becomes the later founder of the Slavic Gospel Mission, a mission agency to this day that is committed to reaching the Slavics and the Russian people for Christ. But before God could greatly use him as an evangelist, he had to bring him to himself. And his family had a a dream for their son that life would be better for him. And so they saved for, for a long time and finally bought his ticket to get on that ship. And his mother packed him up with brown bread and garlic so he would have food to eat on the long trip. And as he was on that boat, he he would often look through the dining room and he would see these patrons who were wealthy and enjoying three luscious meals a day. About halfway through the voyage, some of the sailors noticed his plight and they said, listen, if you will do chores for us in the kitchen, you can eat back there with us. And he was delighted and he worked very hard and enjoyed the food that everyone else enjoyed. But the day before they arrived in Nova Scotia, he learned that actually all three meals were included in his ticket. Now, most of us today know that we have a ticket to have him. We know that it has been paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. But many of us do not know the privileges that are attached to that ticket. And so not only are we to be saved by grace, we are commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And those whom God has justified, He has indeed glorified. And yet there are so many today who are just insecure in the way they think about their salvation. They think that they might lose the ticket or that they might be thrown overboard, or that they might be put on a boat going in the opposite direction. But God wants you to know that there's an all-expense paid ticket, and there is so much, much more to come. Now, I would have thought that what Paul said in verses 28 to 30 would have been enough. He could have just stopped right there. But in the next 12 verses, he climbs to the highest peak there of this great mountain range, And he continues the thought even further, and he starts with a very challenging and important question. What then shall we say to these things? To what things? To the five links in God's golden chain of salvation. He's saying, listen, in light of these five affirmations that move us from eternity past into time and space into eternity future, what can we say? And so to answer his question, he asks five more questions that are really declarations of just how eternally secure we are. And if we are to understand the significance of these questions, we need to understand why He didn't answer these questions. He asks them, but in one sense He doesn't answer them because He wants us to see that there is an implied answer to each of them. That there are five uh, Declarations that God Almighty makes through him that he wants you to leave with us. And so he begins with the first question here in verse 31 as an introduction. He asks, if God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, you know in English that the word if most of the time suggests possibility. If you do this, then such and such will happen. It means perhaps or or maybe, but not for sure. But if you've studied with us already in this eighth chapter, you know that the word if in Greek can be used of possibility, or there's a certain construction in the original that means absolute certainty. And that's the word that is used here. If God be for us, you could write over that word sense or because God is for us. In fact, it speaks of a true and certain condition. And it's obvious when you read the Bible that that is most of the time what is implied. For instance, when the devil is out there in the wilderness tempting our Savior, he said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. When Satan says, if you are the Son of God, he's not questioning whether or not he's the Son of God. It is an assumed reality. And that's clear by the nature of the temptation. The devil would never tempt you to take some stones and turn them to bread because you couldn't do that. And so he assumes that he is the Son of God. And that's the thought here. We've already seen it used that way in verse 9. Notice, however, Paul says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and indeed He does. Look down in verse 11 in your Bible. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and He does, because that is true, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies. You say, well, why don't we just translate it sense? Why didn't God just say sense and use an entirely different word? Because there is a word like that in the New Testament. Because God wanted to emphasize the truth. The way they pounded the pulpit, the way they highlighted or underlined something in in red was to use a particular construction. And God knew for all time that preachers would have to explain it. And in our explaining it, it would settle into your mind as to what God is saying. God is for us. I thought about that this week. God is for Carl Rogge. He's not against me. Make it personal if you've received Christ as your Savior. Do you remember when you were children and there would be two team captains and they had to pick a team from a group of children? And of course, you would always hope that you would be picked sooner rather than later. The worst thing was to be the last one to be picked. And most of the time, unless the guy was just compassionate, he would pick those who were the best. He wanted them on his team. And you became his. He was for you. Well, listen, when God picked you, when God chose you, when God called you, he didn't see anything in you that moved him to do that. All he saw was our filth and our rebellion and our dirtiness and our depravity and our ungodliness. But nonetheless, God chose us. And I will never forget that. And I will never get over that. The grace of Almighty God. And since those whom he foreknew, he predestined, called, justified, and glorified, because we're that secure, Paul can say God is for us. Because of the fact that God is with us and for us, there can be absolutely no one who can oppose us or hurt us or be against us. That's the thought. A possible adversary would have to be stronger than God. And there is no possible adversary. And so God makes it very, very clear. Jesus underscored this truth in John 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me, and I give, because again we do not earn it, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. Those two words, never perish. Apollumai. It means never be lost. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, Not in terms of he is more God than Jesus is, as a Jehovah's Witness tried to explain to me this week. He is greater than all in terms of the role that he plays in the Godhead, but they are equal, as the next verse will say, I and the Father are one, equal in nature. My Father who is given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. In other words, whoever is capable of taking away your salvation would have to be stronger than God, and there is no such person. And so Paul is shouting, is anyone stronger than God Almighty? No, God is for us. Who shall oppose us? Absolutely no one. No one can oppose us. Coming against God would be like coming against an aircraft carrier with a slingshot. It's a total impossibility. And so that's the first declaration that he wants to burn into your soul this morning. There is no effective opposition against the child of God. That brings us to his second declaration. There's no potential deprivation against the child of God. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, this all sounds nice, Pastor Carl, but you don't really understand my circumstances. My wife left me this week. My husband left me this week. Or we are in total financial disarray. We are in deep, deep trouble. Or we are facing as a family serious health problems. Or someone recently ripped me off. Or I lost my job because my my boss didn't like my Christianity. Or I have people now who ignore me, who no longer call me up, who want to be with me because I'm a Christian and they don't like my lifestyle. It doesn't seem to me that God is for me. What are you speaking about? Well, Paul had you in mind when he wrote this. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? How do we know that God is for us? What is the proof that he is for us? And of course, the answer is his son. How can I possibly know that God will stick with me? That he will see me through experientially all the way to glorification? Paul's answer would be, look at the cross. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Of course he will. He will definitely do it. This is what we call an a fortiori argument or the English pronounce it fortiori." It's a greater to lesser argument. We've seen Paul already use this. And so God the Holy Spirit takes some divine logic to bring home a truth that he doesn't want us to miss. If this greater truth can be a reality, then certainly this lesser truth can be true as well. Now think your way through the Holy Spirit's logic through Paul's pen. When the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, who delivered him up to be crucified on a cross? Certainly it was not Judas for money, though he was involved. Certainly, it was not Caiaphas for envy, though he was involved. Certainly, it was not Pilate for fear, though he was involved. Certainly, it was not the Jews for spite, though they were involved. Very clearly, the text says here it was the Father, God, who delivered him over, not for money, not for envy, not for fear, not for spite, but because he loved you. And Paul is saying, listen, the greatest proof of God's love, in spite of whatever your circumstances are going to say to you today, and Before he's done with this chapter, he's going to go through a group of circumstances that probably most of us will never see in this life, far worse than what most of us may be knowing today. And he's saying, in spite of your circumstances, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, how will he not also freely give us all things? If God could give us his son while we were helpless, ungodly, sinful enemies, as he describes us in the fifth chapter... Will he not also give us all things? Yes, he will. Now, if you approached me, you said, uh, Pastor Carl, would you give your son Jeremy for a sacrifice? W- what do you mean? W- what do you want to do with my son Jeremy? Well, we're going to take him and we're going to lie about him. We're going to make fun of him and we're going to spit on him and we're going to club him. We're going to scourge him. We're going to whip him. And then we're going to crucify him will you give us Jeremy? No, you cannot have him, and I would fight you with every ounce in my soul to keep you from getting him. But suppose for the sake of illustration, you were able to prevail on me, and I decided to give you my firstborn. And then you take him, and you crucify him, and you do all the things that you said you were going to do, and then you come and say, well, Pastor Carl, while we're at it, Do you think we could have his baseball card collection in that car that he drives? Take it. Just just have it. That's what Paul is saying. If God could do the greater thing, then certainly God could do the lesser thing. And if there was ever a time when God could have backed out of a promise, it would have been backing out of what he did there at Golgotha. But God did not back out. God is immutable. God does not change. God keeps all of his promises. God cannot lie. And so in the immediate context, he's saying those whom God foreknew, he glorified, period. And you can know it because of what God did through the cross. Now there's a play on words here that every first century reader would have immediately picked up. And beginning here in verse 32, Paul uses a phrase verbatim of the record of Abraham offering Isaac. When Paul writes here, he who did not spare his own son, or uh, um, he's speaking exactly, in our English Bible here, it says he who did not withheld your son. But literally, he who did not spare his own son, that is exactly what the Old Testament says. He uses the exact same words. Now follow this. In the first century, the early church, for the most part, they read the Old Testament for a long time. The New Testament was being written. Some say the canon of Scripture was completed by 70 A.D. before the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. Some conservative scholars say at the latest by about 90 A.D. John completes the Revelation. In either case, there were three or four decades in there where the Bible was being written. And so Paul, when he went into a town, he, he, he didn't you know, look at various Gospels and things like that. He argued from the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus was Messiah. Well what John 3:16 is to the modern church, Genesis 22 was to the ancient church. It was one of the best-loved and most beloved texts of Scripture. Let me read to you what God said there in Genesis chapter 22. If you remember the tests, the various tests that Abraham went through, and Abraham, of course, was a great man of faith. God calls him the father of the faithful. He calls him the father of all who believe. And of course, God takes us through all those various tests of faith that Abraham experiences from an initial act of faith in Genesis 12 to the ultimate act of faith in Genesis 22. He takes us from that initial act where he's tried and tested to the ultimate act. And so if you remember in the initial act, he, he picks up and he leaves Ur of Chaldee to a place that God will show him. And he ends up in a place that today we call Israel. He walked over 1,100 miles from Earl of Chaldean, not knowing where he was going. And then there was another test of faith when he had to contend with uh, the rangemen of, of Lot, the cowboys of Lot, and there were those well-watered, beautiful valley, and, and he let Lot have it in faith. And then if you remember when he fought Sodom and Gomorrah and those kings to rescue his disobedient nephew, he gave the spoils of the war to one of the kings, lest any man say that they had made him rich and he wanted to affirm that God alone had made him rich. In faith, if you remember, he let Hagar take his son whom he loved so much, who he prayed about so often as the text indicates, how he let him take Ishmael away, believing that God would have to take care of both Hagar and Ishmael. But then the supreme test came when there on Mount Moriah, God asked him to give the son of promise, Isaac. Let me read you that verse from Genesis 22. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for I know that you fear God since you have not withheld... Now, what translation of the Bible did the first early church read? They read the Jewish people and, of course, the Greek people. When they read the Old Testament, they read it in Greek. Most Jews in Jesus' day did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic. Most Jews spoke Greek. That's why when you're in the New Testament and you see an Old Testament quotation and you go back and you read it in your Hebrew Old Testament, you say, well, that, that reads almost identically, but not quite. It's just a little bit different. Why? Because he's quoting out of the Greek Old Testament instead of the Hebrew Old Testament. And almost every, with a few exceptions, almost every quotation in the New Testament is not from the Hebrew Old Testament, from the Greek Old Testament. And so what I'm wanting you to see is that Paul verbatim took a well-known, most beloved story where it says, since you have not withheld your son, in the Greek Bible, it says you have not spared your son the exact same verbiage that's used in Romans 8.32. And the early Roman readers would never have missed that. God had commanded Abraham to take his only son and to sacrifice him. And of course, God said to him there in Genesis 22, 8, when Isaac says, where's the lamb? He said, God will provide for himself the lamb. And of course, if you were with us in Romans 4, when Paul referred to this text of scripture, We were reminded that Isaac, according to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, is a type, he is a picture, he is an illustration of Messiah. And so there's Isaac going up Mount Moriah with the wood on his back. Not accidental, a picture of Jesus who would go up to Golgotha with a cross on his back. And we noted that he was not seven or eight years old as pictured in so many of the popular children's Bibles, but he had to be somewhere between 18 to 20 years of age, and Abraham was around 120 based on the chronology of Genesis. Isaac was not some little boy who was helpless and overpowered, he was a strapping, strong young man who could have easily tossed off Abraham, his elderly dad. But like Christ, he said, no one will take my life, I will give it. And in Genesis 22, he allowed himself to willingly be placed on that altar. And no doubt, he believed with Abraham in bedrock faith that God would do what he said. That after he was slaughtered and then burnt to ashes, a burnt offering, that God would raise out of the ashes his son because he was the son of promise. And from his loins would come a whole nation who would ultimately bring Messiah, and all the nations would be blessed. And of course, you know the text God stops him, and Abraham names the place. Jehovah-Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide, 22.14. Call the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And Abraham in 22.8, and as it's recounted here in this verse, uses a future tense to describe what God is going to do. Because if you remember that day, a lamb was not provided. A ram was provided. But Abraham effectively prophesies of the coming Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And we studied when we were in Romans 4 that ridge called Mount Moriah. There's a section of that ridge today right outside the city of Jerusalem that has been called in Aramaic, a slang term, because of the rock formation. It looks like a skull, and they call it Golgotha. Now, we often refer to the place as Calvary. No, when you go to other parts of the world, you mention Calvary. Most people don't know what you're talking about. That is something larger than the American church and the English church. It comes from a Latin term, Calvarius, for skull. But the place is called Golgotha. And it's there on Golgotha right outside this place called Mount Moriah that the Lord Jesus dies and bleeds. In fact, I will not be at all surprised when we get to heaven and God recounts all that Messiah did that we will discover that the exact same very spot that Abraham offered Isaac was the place that Jesus was crucified. But when I read Romans 8.32, it says, God did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all is the exact same wording that every first century Christian would have read from the book of Genesis. And they knew exactly what he was saying. Now we know from scripture that Abel was the first prophet. We know that because Jesus tells us that. You don't know that from the Old Testament. And that's very significant. That's another sermon. But Abraham is the very first named prophet in the scripture. And Abraham, in every detail, both by picture and by the things he says, prophesies the delivering up of God's only son. And so when he says, if he didn't spare his own son, and that he's going to give us all things, what all kinds of things is he speaking about? Well, Peter uses the same term in Second Peter 1.3. He says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And of course, if you know verses 28 to 30, the immediate context, the all things that he's referring to is our salvation that begins with God's calling and ends with God glorifying us. God will escort you home someday to the place He's prepared for you. It's as good as done if you have a true and real and genuine conversion because no one can take away our salvation. And because God is more powerful than anyone else, and because God keeps His Word, and if God can do the greater thing, He will certainly finish the lesser thing. And so Paul will say in Ephesians 1, In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, follow me this morning. For God not to do what he says he's going to do in verses 29 and 30, What he has already positionally done according to verses 29 and 30 would be to create great chaos within the Trinity. Because in these verses in Ephesians, God tells us when you hear the message of truth, the gospel, and you believe it, at that moment you are given God the Holy Spirit. He is implanted in your life. You are sealed with Him for the day of redemption. What's the day of redemption? When Jesus comes back and He completes your salvation. When your justification and sanctification intersect in glorification and your salvation is completed
1: for God to renege on His promise to believers that they are sealed and secure in their salvation for the day of redemption, would make a liar out of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, as well as Jesus Christ. And we'll see what each member of the Godhead said in relation to this when tomorrow we conclude part one of our study entitled, More Than Conquerors. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM41. Tomorrow we finish part one of More Than Conquerors. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.